0: If you have your Bible tonight, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which consists of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, profound teachings. I've asked you to read that Sermon on the Mount every week. You don't have to read it all at once. Read portions of it each day of the week. But to continually familiarize yourself with the words that Jesus spoke, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Just to let that be in your mind, something that you think about. That's better than some song you heard. In the Sermon on the Mount, He begins what we're studying now with what is called the Beatitudes. A way in which you are favored. If you have these characteristics in your life, you are favored and blessed of God, for there is a promise that God gives with each of these beatitudes. Now, these are not suggestions. Because the kingdom of heaven is not something you have if you don't meet the conditions. And he said, like the very first one, poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you want that to be a reality in your life, then you have to meet the conditions. And so each one of these beatitudes tells us a characteristic that should be in our lives. Again, this is the way we're supposed to be. These are things that should emanate or come forth from us. We mentioned several of them, and last week we ended. In verses 10 through 12, I want to go back and brief a couple of things there, and then we'll move on. We were talking last week about persecution. It's not a pleasant subject. It's not a good subject. In fact, it's the kind of subject that we work diligently to avoid. Nobody likes persecution. If you like persecution, you need deliverance. But as a Christian, it is unavoidable. You cannot escape it because it's like you are assigned persecution or that suffering persecution is the will of God. That doesn't sound like what we've generally heard in Christian circles our whole life, but this is one of those necessary messages which sometimes is the other side of the coin. Yes, God has promised this, and this, and this, and this is ours, and that's ours, and healing, and health, and joy, and peace, and all of that. But also, it includes suffering. It includes, well, warring the good war, fighting the good fight. It includes all that live godly, in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. A Christian's life is a reminder in any society of the way a man or a woman ought to live. And a person whose light is shining as a testimony of the work of God in their life reminds others that this is not the work that's going on in your life because you don't want it to. And it brings forth an uneasy feeling when people are around you. They know you're right. They just wish you weren't because you're different. And... Persecution often comes from that because when you start living the Christian life, I remember myself when I got saved in my Sunday school class telling people, if you want to know how a Christian lives, you watch me. You know, bold and all of that. And of course they did. And, you know, they watch you at ball games when I was coaching. They watched you in, during church. They watch you when you're playing at a picnic or something. They listen to everything you're saying, what you laugh at. They watch you like a hawk. A lot of them are looking for you to make a mistake so they can feel better about the fact that you're not all you said you were. You're not living what you're supposed to live, and so you're no different than the rest of us. And so we have to be careful. If we're going to live this life, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we have a life to live. God gives us multiple blessings. A thrill to wake up every day and to know that this is another day you get to live. And today God will do this and that. But also to be prepared for the difficulties that you'll face because you're a Christian, if you're going to live the Christian life. Now, in verse 10, he said, Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is who it belongs to. But listen, you don't go out and try to get persecuted so you can go to heaven. You don't go out and get in people's face and interrupt people and quote the Bible in their face. That's not for righteousness' sake. Righteousness has to do with God's right ways, living the way God wants you to live, ordering your life according to this higher standard right here, and to overcome things that don't want to do this. And you start living like this, you're living the way God wants you to live. John was able to write in 1 John 3, he said, Be not deceived, he said, He that doeth righteousness, is righteous. So righteousness is indeed not only something you're declared to be when you're saved, you're in right standing with God, but it's also a way you live. And when you live right, it is a sign that righteousness is working through you. You're yielding yourself to the ways of God and so forth. Now, persecution is a part of the Christian life. And as I said, it sometimes seems very necessary for this to happen. For example, Luke wrote in Acts 14:22, he says, "We must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom." That sounds strange to our American ears or our watered-down Christian lives. Well, at least mine was growing up that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom. And again, it's not hard to figure out why we will suffer persecution. It's because we're living right. We're doing things the right way. And verse 10, again, he said, on account of righteousness, and this right life as God gives it, it's why we suffer. Remember what Peter wrote? He said, but, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you in First Peter 4. If you suffer for being right, if you suffer for being wrong. If you choose to do what is right and people come against you because you did it, he said, you're blessed. You're blessed. It doesn't register with our minds the way we've been trained and the way we have viewed ourselves and viewed Christianity, but it is what the Bible says. Now let's go to verse 11. Because I didn't get to that. I didn't get to the end there last week. And he said, Blessed are they when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. And when it says for my name's sake, it means on account of. It is because of Jesus that we suffer, as I've already said. But he said, Blessed are you when they speak bad about you, when they revile you, or they say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my name's sake, he said, you're blessed. Again, that doesn't sound right, but it is what God has said. Paul wrote to the Philippian church. He says in Philippians 1 and verse 29, he says, For unto you it is given not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer because of Him. Philippians 1.29 For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ... Not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You put the two together and you begin to realize why the message of faith is not very popular and why it's not deemed to be very essential to a lot of people. Because to walk by faith, to believe on Christ, not to believe about Him, but to believe on Him is a cause for the world to persecute you. He said it's not only given to us on the behalf of Christ to believe on him, but also to suffer because of that or for his sake. When he was writing to the Corinthian church, he said, therefore, he said, I take pleasure having learned this one lesson in life. He said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in harassments and persecutions and reproaches and necessities and in distresses for Christ. He said, for when I'm weak, and they do make you feel like, oh, God, they're going to walk all over me. When I am weak, he said, then I am strong. And to be strong in the Lord probably includes this first. That if you want to be strong, you're going to have to realize what weakness is. Until you need God, and that's the only hope you have, at that point, he begins to come in and do what only he can do. And the Bible says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You'll have to realize that you can't do everything that he wants you to do. To live on his terms means you're going to have to let him have his way in your life. But that's not new to you. But it is so essential for Christians to understand that, if they do, that the Christian life is not easy. It's not fun. And if you do live it, anywhere in the world, any country, any society, in some countries, in Muslim countries, if you choose to profess Christ, there's a good chance you'll be dead. For it's despised and hated. He, Jesus, is so despised and so hated in some places that they literally are driven to kill you for it, or down in other parts of the country, mostly in those Muslim places. But... In other places, in Oriental places, Christianity is not acceptable. The way of Christ is not what people want. They like to hear about all of His goodness and the moral teachings and the morality that goes with Christianity and the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, those are good things. But when you begin to explain what they mean and urge people to live that way, it's not acceptable. Not in this no-money-down society. Because this is the edge of the end time that we're living in now. Paul, when he fell off of that horse and I rode to Damascus, this is what Jesus said. This is the testimony of the Bible about what Jesus said in that light about Paul. He said, For I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And I believe when God chose Paul, he knew the kind of person he was getting. He wasn't going to give up when he put his hand to the plow. He kept it there until he died. He kept it there his whole life. He never did forsake the way of God. It cost him everything. He said it did. He said it's cost me everything. But I have gained. I haven't lost anything. And so persecution and being put in a bad light by a lot of people is what is assigned us in the Bible. Remember what Peter wrote? Think it not strange concerning the fiery... Trials that are to try you or test you as though something strange has happened to you. He said, but rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. It's not you they're against. It's what's inside of you that's making you the way you are. In the days I grew up, the people that I knew in the church I was in, they didn't mind me being the way I was. They didn't mind me carrying on and running around and They didn't care. That's fine. You're just a good old boy. It was when I got born again. When I got saved, i have never gone back. I got saved and all I wanted to do was go forward and learn how to live this life. And my greatest persecution came from the church I grew up in. They were the ones who were the most vociferous. How's that? They were the ones who were the most into it about persecuting our new way. They didn't like this business of saying amen in church. Can you imagine? I wonder what they'll say in eternity when we meet with the people who died at the stake and the people who died in the days of the apostles. Read Hebrews 11. Boy, they went through this. They were beheaded, my wife and children, all this kind of stuff. And they say, tell us how it was in Shelbyville. They say, oh, man, one night the water went off and we didn't have any hot water for two days. Air conditioner wouldn't work. We suffered. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think we know what suffering is in America yet spiritually. I'm sure some people do, but as a nation, this young nation has been shielded and protected and blessed for a long, long time. We've heard so much about the gospel. We've sent it all over the world out of this country. And yet today, as you look at what's being preached and practiced in America from the little bit of it that I have seen, I don't look at it too hard or too much. But it's just sort of a hodgepodge of man-made stuff. The easy way out, the easy way through. No money down, easy payments, nothing to it. Just raise your hand, go to church, you're going to heaven. You don't have to do all of this. After all, we're all in the human body and human flesh. Nobody's perfect. We can't live all of this. And God didn't intend for us to. These are good moral things that we ought to contemplate and deal with in our hearts. And just do the best you can. I mean, come on. When you get a steady diet of stuff like that, your Christianity gives way to what is called worldly, worldly living. Nothing is treasured anymore, nothing is sacred, there's nothing to be holy about, no reason for piety or deep devotion to God. He just knows by some theory of man that you're just a frail human being and nobody's perfect. As one young lady told me years ago about a gospel group and why they did the things that they did on these trips that they took. And one of the lead singers apparently had told her, well, you know, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is just weak, and therefore it's okay. You see, if nobody corrects that, if we never see there's a price you're going to pay to live this life, then Christianity will mean little to us. There has to be an element of cost in whatever we do that we prize highly and appreciate. When something is so meaningful to you that you won't let go of it, you won't give it up. There's nothing in me, about me will supersede this need I have to hold fast to Christ. If I suffer, if I lose my job or lose this or that, I have to hold on. And if you don't, if Christianity doesn't mean something like that to you, if you don't hate the sin you came out of, if you indeed came out of it, if you really repented, if you don't hate where you came out of, eventually you won't see the danger of it and you'll gravitate back. How many do? How many have you known, whether you're young or old here tonight, how many have you known that at one time when you knew them, they were just full of, the boy, they were Christians. I mean, they were, I mean, always at a meeting, read their Bible, testified, praised God, and now they're gone. One day they drifted back into the same old lifestyle they came out of. And we scratch our heads today and we wonder, how could this be? Or a man was once a dynamic preacher, and he's already quit and gone back into the world, and who knows what else? Or a dynamic preacher turns out to be a homosexual in a, another state and he preached against it. You think, how can this be? There has got to be in you, when you turn away from your sin, you turn to Christ. You turn to Christ with everything you've got and hold nothing back. You turn it all over to Him and you hold on. For nobody will you turn around and go back for nothing. For nothing. You pray that God will give you a sensitive spirit that anything that is evil or wrong when it comes in will trigger a response of repentance from you. You want to allow yourselves to give up anything for anybody, not for him, not for her, not for it. And you intend to hold on, and they will call you legalistic, rude and crude and difficult, isolated, independent. I'm trying to think of things I've heard about myself. He won't have anything to do with anybody. Because that's a price that you pay sometimes just to keep yourself clean. Because a little leaven, the Bible says, will leaven the whole lump. You give in a little bit, you'll give in a little more. You give in a little bit more, then you'll give in a lot. Once you give in a lot, you're condemned. And if somebody doesn't come along in your life in those days, or you don't get hammered by the Lord in those times, chances are you cross the line. And I think many have. There's no way you can restore many to repentance. They've already heard everything you've got to say. They used to preach it. What are you going to say to them? They know as well as you do what they're doing. But like of evangelist said many years ago, the reason he quit going to Africa to preach over there, to evangelize, is because he said they love their sin. They love their sin. And if they love their sin, they're not going to give it up. We like your gifts you bring us, but we're not going to give up our lifestyle, which is sinful. Not for you, not for Christ, not for anybody. And because you remain steadfast and you hold fast, you get persecuted. But Jesus says this is a part of the Christian life. This is what happens. Countered all joy when you encounter diverse trials, knowing this. That the trying and the testing of your faith is working in you something that you'll never have to repent of. It'll grow you up. But if you keep looking for a way out, if you keep dreading this and keep whining and crying, well, I'm going through it this, my boys If you keep doing that kind of stuff, you will give up. A lot of people give up because they really don't want to be persecuted. Remember the guy in the sower and the seed who immediately with joy received the seed of the word and boy he was excited and all that but he endured for a while but when persecution arose because of the word by and by he was offended. He was alright for a while but it was when the persecution came that his mettle was tested. Exactly what kind of person you really are Just how badly do you want heaven? How dear is Christ to you? and What does He mean to you? You'll find out because you'll be tested. You'll be persecuted. I'm glad all of you are here tonight. And I trust if you haven't been tested yet, that if you ever are, you will esteem Christ more than your own pleasure, more than pain, sorrow, or anything else that comes from this. That you will love Him with all of your heart and never give Him up. No matter what. No matter what. Now, that said, go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. He said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Do that. Don't murmur, don't whimper, don't cry, don't moan, oh, I have to. Just rejoice. Like James 1 said, Count it all joy. It doesn't mean that you have a reason for rejoicing that something good has happened. Rejoice because Jesus said, You're living the life. If you weren't living the life, they wouldn't persecute you. They wouldn't say all manner of evil about you for being like them. It's when you're different. That's what they hate. Now, tonight, verse 13, 14, and 15. And 16. This is about salt and light. These are the principles of influence. How we will influence the world. And those two principles are salt and light. It characterizes how true disciples are to witness to the world. Now that's you. This is what He wants from us. And if these beatitudes are working in you, this is the way we will see it come to pass. Verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all those that are in the house. One, verse 14, is in the world, the other one is amongst your company. In verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, there's two things mentioned here to begin with about the world. One, the world is an unsavory place. Now, I looked up in the dictionary what the word savory means, and it means to be disagreeable, morally offensive, and worthy of rejection. Now, if those three words accurately identify unsavory, and the world is indeed an unsavory place, listen to this. This is where you live. You live in an environment which God describes... It's disagreeable to him, isn't it? It is disagreeable. It is morally offensive. That's a no-brainer there. Morally offensive. No age has ever since Sodom and Gomorrah been as morally offensive as this society is. And yet in the last days, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, it will be in the last days. We are there. We are there. Another way it was defined, it was that evil in a moral or spiritual sense, wicked, malicious, and mischievous. Worthy of rejection. Now think of this. If this is the way the world is viewed by God, if this is what darkness means, if this is what men love, because Jesus said He came as a light to the world in John 3, but men love darkness better than light, They don't want to exchange what is called fun and glamour today in the world to give it up for long dresses and two-hour sermons. And so they just can't see any fun in that because their whole process of thinking, the way they think, the way they view things in the world, the way the mind is captured by the world, is to be like it. That's why the world is disgusting. To God, it is morally offensive to God. It is worthy of rejection. Now, we live in that world. Those are the kind of influences that you have to face, whether in school or in society, on the job site, wherever you are. These are the kind of people that we're going to have to be around and face. This is why we're tempted or persecuted also, but these are the kind of people that we're going to have to be around. First John 5 says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You think of that for a minute. Revelation speaks of the devil, who has deceived, or is trying to, and is successful at deceiving, listen, the whole world. You're talking about five or six billion people minus... How many Christians, I don't mean name Christians, who say, you know, there are 10,000 being saved every day. I've heard about everybody being saved so much all my life, and yet it's hard to find them. I'm talking about living the life. I don't mean professing the life. I mean living it. He talks about in this world, he said, the whole world lies in darkness. It's full of nonsense. It's full of foolishness. It's full of things that corrupt the soul. The Bible says that pure religion and undefiled is this, not only to visit the widows and the fatherless in their affliction, but to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's James 5. To keep yourself unspotted from the world because it's all around you. The temptations are everywhere. What did Jesus say before he left? He said, take heed that no man deceive you. Be cautious, Peter wrote. Be careful. Watch what you're doing. Take heed how you hear things. Take heed what you hear. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're all around you. And the tempter's goal is to get you. He's got all the other ones. To get you to on that weekday to align yourself with somebody and do something you shouldn't do or say something you shouldn't say. Just lay aside your Christianity for a little while and have a little fun. And that's the way he's deceiving a whole lot of people, the way he tries to anyway. But the world is a morally deceptive place. The second thing about the world, it's a dark place. Because all of these things I just described, all these traits of the world and characteristics of the world, is what darkness really is. The Bible uses these words. It uses a works of darkness, powers of darkness, rulers of the darkness of this age, works of darkness, unfruitful works of darkness. A lot of things that are said about what the world does is things that are done in darkness. And a lot of it's religious. A lot of it is religious. Let's look first of all at salt. Salt. There's two primary functions of salt. For he said, you are the salt of the world, didn't he? Salt of the earth. You are lights, not only to the world as a whole, but to your neighbors, your friends, and your companions. You have that obligation to live the life in their midst, not only to encourage them, but to make them have confidence in you. But salt, there's two things, primary things about salt, two things that salt does. One, salt gives flavor. And secondly, salt is a preservative. A lot of meat was preserved in days gone by because of the influence of salt rubbed in the meat. Let's take salt as a thing that gives flavor. Job chapter 6. Would you turn over there for just a moment? It's not that far back halfway through the Bible. Job chapter 6 and verse 6. Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Aren't you glad he said that? Because you see, now I can say this. I have a basis for saying this. Salt is not bad. I remember my mother, when she was still alive, we were out to eat one time and... I don't do salt like that. I do it like this. I hold it up where it's coming it out, and then I tap it. And that way I can get it on there just right. And I was tapped it two or three times. He said, you shouldn't eat so much salt. Being your mom, you have to listen to that, and you can't say a thing back. And I said, well, I didn't use that much. Well, you used too much. Okay. All right. I don't think I did, but, you know, I ain't going to argue with my mom. But she had been influenced by physical conditions, I suspect in all these trips to the medical world, that if you eat salt, it is bad in some way for your body. The same would, they would say you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that, or this is wrong for you, or that's wrong. You shouldn't eat red meat, for example. And I think, you know, God said He gave us animals for food. If He gave us animals for food, He didn't say, now this isn't good for you, but you can eat it. What would an egg taste like without salt? Amen. How about a nice, fresh, red tomato? Ooh, you know, how would that taste without a little salt on it? Well, if good tomato doesn't need it, but a little salt kind of adds a little pop to it. People like salt on a cantaloupe. I put pepper on cantaloupe. I like pepper on everything. Ugh. But. Salt is a preservative. It gives flavor. It makes savory. Now, spiritually, then, we would say this about that. We are that on this earth which gives flavor to the earth. There's a whole lot in the Bible about salt. We give flavor to the earth. Why would God deal kindly with this world if you weren't in it? Why does the sun shine on the wicked? Why does a wicked man's crops grow? Because a righteous man's crops grow, and because the sun shines on the righteous. This is what we are on this earth. We are what commends the earth to God. Why didn't God destroy all of Sodom and Gomorrah? Right away, when we first heard about all the antics in Sodom and Gomorrah, why was it not destroyed? You think about it, because a righteous man was there. And God was not going to destroy the whole thing because a righteous man was there. But He wanted the righteous man there to know that God was going to judge it and to get out of there. And God in His goodness and His graciousness allowed him to escape with most of his family. Because you see, God is serious about all these kind of things. and, And He wants us to live a life in such a way that, well, God is favorable to the earth. To much of it. And I'll tell you this as long as Christians are on the earth, the earth will have God's favor shown to it. He certainly will. Our lives are made presentable to God because the word, like salt, is applied to our lives and it preserves us and keeps us. What in you keeps you from going back to sin? Your conscience. Your conscience wasn't like that when you were growing up. Why is your conscience different? Because it's been informed. You've had new information given to you that registered with your heart that this is true. That became your conscience. Anything that violates that now is brings what is called guilt and conviction. We don't run in the old ways that we used to run because our conscience would condemn us. And we know how to deal with that. We put it on the cross, we crucify that, we turn away from it, go away from it, whatever you want to call it. But that's what we do. The second thing about salt is that salt is a preservative. Like I mentioned a while ago about meats or ham, salted ham, it's a preservative. Salt is designed to hold back rottenness. Salt is given to keep back the forces of corruption and to fight decay. You think about this in a spiritual sense, salt in that light. We're in warfare. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and unseen evil forces. Do we not? We are told many times in the Scripture that Christians are engaged in war. That if we do not fight the enemy, then the enemy will succeed and take over. That we are to draw our sword and fight the good fight of faith. We must believe that the Word of God, as He's given it to us, will indeed work. We can't make it work. We must believe it works. That's why we arm ourselves with things that we say. We quote the Bible when we believe it. I mean, if you really believe it, you quote the Scriptures. No evil shall befall me, no plague come down my dwelling, and he'll give his angels charge over me to keep me in all my ways, and therefore I take off on a trip, and I expect to be safe. I expect to return home. I have that kind of expectation. This is supposed to work, and it has worked, and it does work. You begin to apply these kind of things, and the word really does work. It does work like a preservative. Now, I said a while ago, as long as you're on this earth... There is a reason, like Job in Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a reason that God does not destroy the whole earth. I want you to turn to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter two. John had written in his little epistle, in First John chapter three, he said, "For this purpose the Son of God was manifested." Y'all remember this? For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Now this is why one of the reasons Jesus said He came was that He might destroy the works of the devil. And then Jesus said in John 20 and verse 21, He said, As my Father has sent me, so send I you. Now if if Jesus came to deal with the enemy and break down strongholds and powerful weapons that the devil had, the strong man then are we not to do the same thing? Well, there's a whole sermon there. I'm going to go into it tonight. But there is a reason that Jesus remains at the right hand of the Father tonight, and He will so until we have put His enemies under our feet. And then it says He will return. So there is a kind of warfare going on that will take place in real ways in the last days. In the last days, the intensity of warfare is going to be greater. But the victories that will be gained will also be greater too. And somebody, maybe the whole church is vague about this, maybe all those professing Christians in the world, maybe some of us, I don't know. But I know this, that there is a duty that we have to put under our feet the enemies of God. If we don't know what they are, we can't. If somebody doesn't teach us, we can't know. If somebody doesn't show us how to fight, we can't fight. All we can do is give in to everything that comes along and say, well, I was hoping I wouldn't get that or I didn't want that to happen. It scares me to death. We never learn how to fight. I'm talking about a spiritual battle. I'm talking about warring the good war as soldiers. As people who carry a sword and have a shield and the breastplate, and the loins girt, and all of that, and the helmet. Because we're in a warfare. Somebody wants to put you down. And you have to fight. I mean, the Bible is full of this, just full of it. You have to fight. Now, notice in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 7. Speaking of the Antichrist, the days that are just in front of us, probably in operation beginning right now. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Well, he obviously he's not talking about the Holy Spirit because he hadn't been taken out of the way. You say, well, Jesus was taken out of the way. Jesus said he sent the Holy Spirit. And when he said, I will send the Spirit, he also said in another verse, I will come unto you. Talking about something the same in the same essence here. So he hasn't gone anywhere. He's still here because somebody is still here. And whoever this somebody is, or whoever this group or people are, they are the ones that are, the word letteth is used. Now, let me give you a little better definition than letteth. The word letteth means to withhold. In, in, in verse 7, it's withholdeth. Letteth is a word which has to do with preventing. Read it like this. Only he that doth prevent will prevent until he be taken out of the way. And when he is taken out of the way, then comes the evil one. Let me read for you from a very gifted commentator. Listen carefully at these words. I think Mr. Barnes said this, but listen to this. He said that there is in the neuter gender a he... There can be no doubt that there is reference to the same restraining power or the same power under the control of an individual, but what it was is not quite certain. It was some power which operated as a check on the growing corruptions then existing and which prevented their full development, but which was to be removed at no distant period and whose removal would give an opportunity for these corruptions to develop themselves And for the full revelation of the man of sin. I believe that. I believe there is work in the earth right now tonight. If possible, the devil would take over tonight. But there's only one problem that he cannot overcome. And that's those believers who know how to fight. For we have been given authority over him. Have we not? Has he not been put under our feet? are we not to exercise control over Him? If we're seated in heavenly places in fellowship with the Lord and He has put the devil under our feet, then we should live triumphantly every day over Him. Not only that, but we should also tell other people about it. As salt... One of our duties is to fight the good fight of faith, not give in and quit, giving up and giving in to all the little pressures, the light momentary afflictions Paul writes about, or the things that seem to be so big. You got to fight. Listen to one translation that says for the secret of evil is even now at work, but there is one who is keeping back the evil till he is taken out of the way. Who is he that is going to be taken out of the way? It's a male gender. It's not Jesus. He was already taken. I mean, when this was written, he had already been resurrected. So it wasn't talking about him. Not talking about the Holy Ghost, for he's still in you. So who is he? It wasn't the Pope because all of this is still going on today. Well, who is he? Because whoever he is, is the epitome of salt. As a preservative and as one who holds in check deteriorating forces. Let me tell you something about that. If salt has deteriorated, how can it hold back that which deteriorates? And that's the question he asks us. Let me read another translation. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only there is one who is hindering and will continue to hinder till he be removed. That's interesting. Let me give you another one. His mysterious power is already at work. But someone is holding him back, and the wicked one won't appear until that someone is taken out of the way. Now, it sounds like to me that this he is a group. Because the devil doesn't just work in one area, and that's the only place in the world where wickedness is taking place. Wickedness is all over the world. But all over the world, God has pockets of believers everywhere who are able to not only recognize him, but to know the wiles of the devil, recognize his work, recognize his ways, arm themselves with the truth and combat him in spiritual warfare. These believers are all referred to as a he. Then read another one. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but only until he Who is holding it back, has been gotten out of the way. Will this Antichrist appear? Now there have been many debates over who this is. Commentaries that don't help you much when it talks about he who led us. Because they refer to either the Pope or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Which it couldn't be those. But it's somebody. Paul wasn't writing something aimless here that these people did not understand. He says, for you know. He didn't spell it out specifically for us, but he said, now you know what's holding him back. That's why he told those people there, don't give up the fight. Fight the good fight. You put him under your feet and you keep him there. I think he's talking about, in like in the book of Revelation, those who will reign and rule with him. It's a group that they just call man-child it is a he and he will reign and rule with christ the rod of his strength in psalm 110 will go out of zion and it has and it's been given to the christians all over the world many have put down their sword don't even believe in it but a few of us picked it up our testimony to the world is that it does work we have ruled him out of our life we have gotten our lives in check our bills have been paid our children are in order Our bodies are well. We know the one who was trying to disrupt everything. The disruptor of my body was the devil. Did the Bible call it a spirit of infirmity still? Something like that? If it's a spirit, what do you do about it? You fight. Most people can't fight because they can't imagine the devil doing that. But it is a spirit. It is a spirit. Jesus didn't cast himself out of people. He cast spirits out of people. Spirits that made people sick and made people ill. I think they're spirits of poverty. I think they're melancholy spirits, mental illness spirits. I think everything that Jesus healed and cast out of people was something that the devil was doing. And he says, greater works than these shall you do. He said, because I go to my Father. But he said, the works that I do shall what? The works that I do shall what? Shall you do also. Don't you think in the unseen world the devil dreads the idea that you would do that? If I can just keep you ignorant, keep you uncertain, keep you distracted, keep you busy with something else, this won't ever come into your life as a force and a power. However, once you get a hold of this and you set yourself down and you get real serious about it, maybe you have been, maybe you think, you know what? I am called, in a sense, to do what Jesus did concerning the powers of darkness. As He dethroned them, so am I. As He did it, I am to do it too. In fact, He gave me His equipment. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, so i give it to you. Go into all the world and do this and do that. These signs shall follow those who believe. Didn't He say that? And He mentions in there a couple of things. He said that if they drink any deadly thing, it won't hurt them. Who would try to hurt you? Your enemy. But he can't if you know what you believe. And that sounds so far-fetched today that even folks like you have a hard time with it. Oh, come on now. I've heard too many. No, I'm not going to come on anything because that's what the Bible says. We haven't expected enough out of ourselves. We haven't put ourselves in the place that God puts us where he says, You do this like I did. You love your brother as I have loved you. You exercise the faith that I give you, the faith of Jesus. You exercise that, and you put my enemy and your enemy under your feet. I'm expecting you to do that. Enough of this sickness and disease and, and weakness and frailty and, and whining and bawling and squall. Enough! Those are not evidences of a victorious Christian life. It just shows that the devil has got the victory over too many people's lives. He that preventeth will prevent until he is taken out of the way. And yet, there's millennial views today. You know, the all millennials believe we're in a millennium now. They don't believe in any millennium. And then there's pre-millennials, which we believe that before Christ sets up His millennial kingdom, He will come back and establish this, and so forth, and we'll go through the, the tribulation. And then we'll go into that. The, and then there's the post-millennials who said, well, uh, the world's just going to get better and better and better. It's just going to get better and better and better. I don't know how they believe that. A lot of people do. Good will eventually triumph over evil. Somewhere down the road, maybe centuries from now, good will triumph over evil. And I think, you know, the Bible says evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. That doesn't sound much better to me. There had been a time when this whole earth to really start all over and get it right was Noah's ark. The only ones that lived were Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. And these were all good people. And not long after that was Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been like that forever. Man naturally gravitates to his baser nature. He just goes back to the things that he came into this world with his desires, his evil desires. And he evaluates God in terms of what it's going to cost him and whether or not this is going to make him the way he wants to be. And if it doesn't fit in with his success, he sets it aside. And goes to another church. Whatever. There is no such thing as painless Christianity. There is no such thing as painless or costless Christianity. It's going to cost every one of you in here to live this life remember one time a person said well we shouldn't tell new converts that that's exactly what I'd tell them are you really willing to live this life now you're all emotional now and you've been reminded of your sin and all that kind of stuff let me tell you something you got to lay it all on the line everything all of it it's all or nothing are you willing to forsake anything that would get between you and the Lord what if the enemies of your life is in your family I don't mean to be rude Are you willing to suffer that? Being ousted? What if it's an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife that says it issues the ultimatum? Are you willing to live the Christian life if you cannot fix that? Are you willing to live whatever you have to do? What if it costs you that? What if it costs you your job? What if it costs you your prestige and your fame in the city or something? Would you give it up if it's going to cost you that? You see, there's no way we can get around this. We're in this earth for a reason. As I said, we commend this earth to God. God is only favorable because you're here. Now, when a rapture, I'm one of those who still believe in that. I believe in raptures, church. I don't believe everybody who goes to church will be raptured. But I believe within the church, there are those who really, really are trying to live this life. This is that little core of people who are now preventing the devil from taking over. You know, somebody in a church is an intercessor, and they're praying against the devil. They see the devil working this family's children, and over here, and this, and then we got this and that, or we need this new building, or this one's leaking, and then we needed this, or we need. You know, there's some that just press in. Well, they come against everything that would hinder that. That's warfare. That's fighting. It's not going well for us necessarily because everybody in here is living right, but because somebody pressed in. Somehow in their life by the power of God, this light came through and shone into their hearts that this is your mission. This is part of it. You're a part of something. You're a part of a, let me call it he. You're a part of a he. And the enemy's going to do his very best to stop you and to prevent you, but you prevent him. You wag that sword back in his face and say, in Jesus' name, you will not affect that family anymore. In Jesus' name, you're not going to rob us or me or her or him or your children of their finances. In Jesus' name, I rebuke that marital discord spirit. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. It may take a while to fix all of these things, but you take your stand. You don't sit down and let the devil do things like he just does. And people just say... Well, you know, you can never just always know. Well, you know, it comes every now and then. It ran in my family. It's running in my life, I guess. Who said? Who said if the devil brought some kind of a family illness that it has to go into your children through you? Who told you that? It happens. Well, it's real. Have you got your eyes open? Have you read? Yeah, I've read all of that stuff. Know it well. But it doesn't have to be. Bonnie and I, we first got saved. We heard a message about that very thing right away. And I remember Bonnie said one night we got home. She said, we've been robbed. And, of course, I knew what she was talking about because I heard the same thing she heard. We've been robbed. We've let all these sicknesses and things come into our families. Our only hope was a shot, a pill, or an operation. That's all we had. And if it was a certain disease, there's nothing that will work. We just accepted that as the terms of life and can't do anything about it. And then somebody came along and for the first time in my life said it doesn't have to be like that. And at first I thought, what? And then he started quoting the Bible. And my mind would say, you know, that's right. It doesn't have to be like that. We don't have to have all of that. You don't have to be broken down older in our life and die in our 30s or 50s or 70s. He said, with long life, you'll satisfy us. Satisfy. Satisfy. Long life, you'll satisfy us. Well, I don't need somebody to give me a policy that they call it a life insurance policy. That there's no such thing. Unless you're a Christian. I said, there's no such thing. There's not a company, corporation, business in the entire world. Or in other worlds that can ensure that you're going to live a long life nobody, except one. That's my policy, the ORC plan, the old rugged cross. For he said, with long life will I satisfy you. Now the devil tries to take that away from you. You want to keep it? Well then fight, somebody's trying to take it away from you. Give me that, you ain't getting well. and You say, I am too. Jesus didn't die for me to go through this stuff that you're putting on people. What God laid on Jesus for my sake, the devil has no right to put on me because I've been healed by his stripes. Amen. I don't have to be poor and broke down and sad and sorrowful like so many times in my life my parents were. As I said while I was by, I said, the buck stops here. Just like Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. That is enough. I remember one time calling every one of my children before me sitting in a chair. I laid hands on every one of them. All of them I had. We had a bunch. But I laid hands on their heads and I prophesied over them. Released them from the family tree. And all the ugly things that in our family. Her side and my side. All the different kinds of diseases and illnesses that had just taken over the family tree. Caused dread and fear. I laid hands on them. Devil, you're not going to do this to my kids. In the name of Jesus, you're not going to do that. I forbid it. If I said, well, who do you think you are? Well, let me see who I am. Jesus said... Let's see, how do He say this now? If you declare something to be illegal and unlawful on the earth, God will also from heaven. Isn't there something like that in the Bible? And whatever you permit... Allow, stand by, and let it happen. Whatever you permit, God will too. And you can say, why doesn't God do something? And He'll say, I already have. I told you through this book, i got several promises that will meet your need right now. I've already done what I need to do. The problem is, you don't know it, and if you did, you haven't accepted it. And therefore, there's nothing heaven can do for you. He said, if you... Declare something to be illegal and unlawful. and Whatever you bind. Remember that? Listen to it. Whatever you. Whatever you bind on this earth will be bound in heaven. Heaven says he's my man. I gave him the word. He's operating the word. He said, I bind the devil from my finances in Jesus' name. And God says, so be it. Or if you're being robbed financially and you're just sitting there crying about it. And you allow it. Whatever you. Bind will be bound and whatever you what? Loose or allow, It will be allowed. It's not God's fault, folks. I know how 40 years of talking this very thing, it had not changed in 40 years. This message has not changed. And I still know the response most of the time to what I just said. It's almost too good to be true. And the people who have heard it a lot still... Let things happen in their lives and in their family. They just allow it to happen. And it doesn't have to be. We're salt. Man, when the devil comes on the scene, we'd come out there like, you know, the S on the shirt. Remember what the S stood for? What did it stand for? Superman. Superman, well, not anymore. It stands for salt now. Because if it's salty... It'll hold back spiritual forces of corruption. Let me say it again one more time. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you allow, whatever you lose, whatever you stand by and let happen, so will heaven. And God will say at the end of your life, My people have been destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They have heard it and did not receive it. But this word, letteth, means restrains, prevents, holds back, and hinders. And is talking about what we are equipped to do as Christians on this earth with regard to our adversary, the devil. We must engage him and not run from him. We must not turn our heads and say, Oh, I don't like to hear that, because that's his work too. To distract you, keep you busy give you something else to do whatever and you have to overcome him and overcome all of those kind of things now here's a warning in this sermon on the Mount: if salt has lost its savor what good is it what good is saltless salt he even said in one book it's not even good for the dunghill hill about all it's good for us to put on a path to walk on and maybe it'll absorb maybe some of the moisture if it rains but it's good for nothing he's talking about people here he's not talking about literal salt other than using it as an example and then spiritually make an application of how we ought to be in this world this is how we should influence the world influence our wives, our children our neighbors maybe our school teachers and our friends anybody around us they should see that we're different They should see that we are different than we used to be. We're different from other people. We're not that way that we used to be. One more verse and then we'll close and get light next week. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. the last two verses in Mark's Gospel. Chapter 9. Interesting thing here that he says at the end of this. For everyone shall be salted with fire. What does fire do? What are fiery trials? Purged, don't they purge, do Doesn't Malachi talk about that Jesus shall set as a refiner? He's a refiner's fire. And he will purge and cleanse and purify the sons of Levi. Well, fire will do that. You heat ore high enough and all the scum will come to the surface. And you can rake it off and purge the thing. And that said salted, as a preservative, made secure, unwavering, is mentioned there. He said, everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. The Old Testament has a lot of things to say about salt. Every sacrifice included salt. Every sacrifice. In three different books in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, he speaks of the covenant of salt. Paul writes, let your speech be seasoned with salt in Colossians 4, six, It's just something about salt that we have to understand. That salt not only preserves and keeps us, but it makes us pure. Rotting, putrefying, worldly things cannot break through this thing if you've got it. Because it will resist. We have been purged. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're a living sacrifice. Doesn't it say in Romans to present yourselves? A living sacrifice unto God. Clean and pure. We are to do that. And in that sense, that's what salt does to us. It keeps us clean. It keeps us pure. People put salt in wounds. who <laughs> They hurt. But it... It is a cleansing agent also. And so when he said in verse 50, salt is good, it means that it does a lot of good things, and it means a lot of things, good things. We've been talking about it. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you seize it in? Then these words, have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Be real. Be real. Don't let impurities in your life and misrepresent you and live one way today and some other way tomorrow. Have salt in yourself. Two Arabs make a covenant with each other. Maybe it was Jewish. When they made the covenant and they made an agreement, they had salt between them. They threw salt as a preservative, signifying that this is a real deal. So you see, whenever the Bible tells us that we are to influence this world like salt, it means that we have an effect on this earth. We should have an effect in this church. You should have an effect in your families, with your friends. We should be an encouragement to each other. Like I said, our speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. Things that lasting and pure and clean. Because you see, this is one of the things that happens When we start walking with the Lord, we become keenly aware that God has called us to live as Jesus did. He was an example for us to follow in his steps. And we are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of Shelbyville. You are salt in Shelbyville's Christian assembly. And you are salt in your homes. Just like a city that's set on a hill can't be hid, neither can your testimony. Not to the community or in your family. We'll get that next time. Amen. Would you bow your head with Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for Your Word to settle in all of our hearts the meaning of it and do that transforming work that You speak of in Your Word. May it bring forth the character that we just studied in the Beatitudes. May we lay down all of our opposition, all of our excuses, everything, Lord, that keeps us from doing and being all that we should be and do. We ask that You would give us all that we need to do to do that. Make us to be like salt, Lord. Not offensive to people. Peacemakers, harmless as doves, yet warriors. And we ask You to do that tonight for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.